Welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner, Walid Amar, and Pradeep Tasigi. Hello, everyone. This episode's guest is Jonathan Frankel, who is a PhD student at MIT. Welcome to the podcast episode, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me. Today, we're talking about the lottery ticket hypothesis. This work has been quite popular lately. After the original paper was published sometime last year, there's been a lot of follow-up work uh, in this area. We decided to chat with Jonathan about the lottery ticket hypothesis and also about potentially some of the follow-up work that's come out after the original paper was written. Jonathan, can you tell us about what exactly lottery ticket hypothesis is? First, just a little bit of context on why this works. It's important to understand the motivation. So we already know that the neural networks that we usually train are much larger than they have to be to represent the functions that they eventually learn. As one piece of evidence for this, we train very large models, but afterwards we can prune them. We can remove connections, we can remove neurons, and make them much smaller, often in order of magnitude smaller, and we don't lose any accuracy in the process. And what this means is that the functions learned by the model have a very compact representation much smaller than you know the model's original capacity was. And the question I wanted to ask with this work was, was that capacity ever necessary? Did we ever need to have all those extra connections in order for the model to learn? Was it that perhaps the learning process requires a lot of capacity, but actually representing the final function requires very little capacity? And so the goal of this work was to try to understand, can we train these smaller models from the start? Now, there have been previous experiments that have shown that if you take the model architecture that you get from training a big model and then pruning it and try training that from the start, so just randomly sample new values for each of the connections and try to train it, this produces much lower accuracy than the pruned network. The experiment I wanted to try was maybe these connections received a very lucky initialization. Maybe the original values that each connection received were very important. And so I just wanted to try perhaps what if we take the pruned architecture, set each connection back to its original value, maybe that will learn differently. And we found that in the end, that actually learns very effectively. Well past the point where randomly initializing the sparse model causes it to reach lower and lower accuracy, using the original initialization for each connection causes it to get much better accuracy. And the hypothesis is, in a sense, a generalization of that phenomenon. We hypothesize, perhaps in general, the large networks that we train have much smaller subnetworks that are capable of training just as effectively. They can train just as fast to just as good of performance. It's a hypothesis that only characterizes the empirical results that we found. It's you know not a theorem. It's not a fact of the universe. We don't have a proof for it. But it was a way of summarizing all of our observations on a pretty wide range of vision networks. Thanks. That's a great summary. Thanks for also uh, telling us the motivation behind uh, the lottery hypothesis. You mentioned pruning the network and finding subnetworks within the larger network. Can you tell us about how exactly that pruning would work? There are a lot of different strategies for pruning neural networks. If you can imagine a strategy, somebody has published a paper on it. But the simplest way of pruning a neural network is to train it to completion and then remove the connections with the lowest magnitudes. Every connection has a weight, and look at the weight value, take the absolute value of that, and remove those that have the lowest values at the end of training. There's no theorem that says this should work well, but in practice, this is one of the most effective ways to prune. It's been popular as a pruning strategy going back to the 1980s. We extended that strategy and then asked the question, what if you take the sub-network that you get by pruning and take each connection back to its original value. You mentioned that that's one of uh, the many techniques that people have tried. Can you briefly summarize to us what other options people have used in the past and how they compare to the magnitude pruning that you just mentioned? I can definitely summarize the other options. I don't want to talk too much about the comparison just because it's one of the big challenges right now is that it's very hard to compare these methods. But there are two different aspects of pruning that you need to think about. The first is, what is my heuristic for pruning? What tells me which connection should be pruned and which connection should not? 
And people have looked at things like activations, things like gradients, or various other sensitivity metrics that look at the loss. People have looked at the momentum parameters. Pretty much any quantity that might confer some information, folks have looked at. And in general, it's, it's quite hard to compare these to each other. The other axis that you might consider is what kinds of structures will you prune? In the paper, I focus on pruning individual connections, which is the smallest kind of structure. But you might imagine pruning an entire neuron. That involves pruning a lot of connections in a very structured way or pruning an entire convolutional filter or convolutional channel in the context of a natural language processing model that might be pruning an attention head. And these sorts of structured pruning approaches are actually very popular in practice. The idea is that if you prune a network connection by connection, you get a sparse matrix in the end. And these sparse matrices are less efficient on most modern hardware. Whereas if you prune in a more structured way, you may still get dense matrices that simply have smaller dimensions, and those are much more efficient on, say, GPUs. So in practice, people tend to favor structured pruning approaches where possible because it'll get you better speed up and better efficiency. Cool, yeah, that, that sounds good. So going back to magnitude pruning, which is a technique that you used in most of your work, what you mentioned does sound a lot like dropout. Can you tell us a bit about how it compares to dropout? There are two big differences. One is that you, you can imagine my lottery ticket experiment is taking place in two phases. The first phase is you train the whole network, and the second phase is you retrain with just a subnetwork. In the case of dropout, you're training the whole network the entire time, but on each iteration, you're randomly dropping a certain fraction of either the neurons or the connections as you train the network. So the two big differences are, in my case, I'm never randomly dropping connections. The connections are always dropped, given that a heuristic said these connections were less important. And once they're dropped, they're dropped forever. I don't have connections coming and going like in dropout. And the other big difference is that I either train the full model or I train the sparse model. In dropout, you're somewhat always training a sparse subnetwork the entire time, but you're training a different sparse subnetwork every time. Right. So you describe to us how exactly pruning works and what exactly you're trying to do here. Is there a formal definition or a formal statement for the hypothesis, the lottery ticket hypothesis that you want to mention? I've written a statement that uses mathematical notation, but I still wouldn't call it a formal statement necessarily. I think the lottery okay. ticket hypothesis is by its nature informal. It, it reflects kind of an empirical statement of what we've seen in practice. But I'm, I'm always nervous to put it into a formal context because I can give you counterexamples, situations where the lottery ticket hypothesis could not possibly apply, situations where the network is already of minimum size when you train it, and therefore you can't make it any smaller. So it's really an empirical okay. phenomenon. It's a statement about the kinds of networks we typically train in practice on the kinds of tasks we typically use in practice, not a statement about neural networks universally. Interesting. Uh, I was wondering, depending on the method that you use for pruning, you will end up with a different kind of subnetwork, right? So like you said, if you put individual connections, you will have a very sparse matrix, but the original size of computation would stay the same. I'm curious to know if you've seen more robust or more common shapes for these subnetworks that tend to be winning tickets. Somewhat. It varies depending on not only the architecture and the task, but also how you optimize the network. So I'm always nervous to make general statements beyond there are definitely patterns, but the patterns vary. I think one thing I've seen in general is that it tends to be evenly sparse. You don't tend to see certain neurons that are very highly connected and certain neurons that are unconnected. You tend to see that all neurons have about the same number of incoming connections. Beyond that, though, I've had a very hard time trying to extract patterns about either the, the architecture or the initialization. That would be the holy grail, in my opinion, if we had a way to just create these sparse networks from scratch by looking at enough of these lottery tickets. And so far, that's been a, a challenging task for me to take on. Got it. And in terms of the implication, is one of these pruning methods easier to use in practice? For example, one of the insights that people have been using somewhat as a follow-up on this hypothesis is that we can do distillation. When we do distillation, we want to 
initialize the model parameters with some of the original model parameters. This way we make sure that we have at least some of the of the winning tickets, right? I was wondering if you have any insights on just practical considerations when considering which method, which pruning method to use. I'm not sure there are too many practical insights with respect to pruning in general from the lottery ticket phenomenon. I think one of the big points of emphasis for me when I present the work is that it's it's not really about pruning. I would say more it's about how neural networks learn and what the optimization process looks like. I think pruning was a methodological choice in order to get at that idea, but I'm, I'm always nervous to make pruning the centerpiece. I can make a couple of notes, though, that a team at Facebook recently released a paper where they showed, and it's going to be in NeurIPS later this week, where they showed that these lottery tickets can transfer from task to task. So if you find one for one vision task, you can reuse it for another vision task. And this is at least a way of taking advantage of the fact that once you've found one of these good initializations, it may be useful beyond precisely the original task you used it for. Another insight we found is that typically in pruning, after you've pruned the network, you've you've actually lost a bunch of accuracy because you just damaged the function you learned. So you have to train the network a little bit more to kind of fix up the network and get back to a good accuracy. We found empirically that if you follow the lottery ticket procedure instead, you train to completion you prune, then you rewind the weights back to some earlier value and retrain from there, we actually get better performance in terms of the sparsity of the prune network that matches the accuracy of the original network. So there are some implications, but I don't think it was kind of a centerpiece of the work. Right. I wanted to chat a bit about how exactly you implemented the pruning procedure and what exactly you did for your experiments. Can you describe to us how exactly pruning worked? Once you train a network to completion, you just train it following whatever procedure is standard for that particular network. The next step is to prune it. And I I stated earlier that you prune the connections with the lowest magnitude. There's more to it than that. You could imagine a lot of ways that might go wrong. Let's imagine that you have, say, a two-layer network, and all the connections in the first layer end up having very small values. If you prune the weights with the lowest magnitudes globally, one fear might be that you accidentally prune the entire first layer, and the network no longer works properly. And that's been a concern in the literature dating back, I think, decades. So one solution people typically took was to prune the lowest, say, 20% of weights in each layer, or pick your favorite percentage, but to prune each layer separately. The idea being that perhaps the weights will have similar distributions by layer, but the distributions may not necessarily be related to each other between layers. That was at least the insight. Now, we ended up finding in practice in this paper that you can just prune the network globally, treat the network as one giant vector of weights, and prune those at the lowest magnitude, completely ignoring the layer boundaries. This is something that does not intuitively work. In fact, in neural networks that have a ReLU activation function, and especially with batch normalization, there's no reason to believe that the magnitudes of weights in one layer will have anything to do with the magnitudes of weights in another layer. But we found in practice that the network, when you prune in this way, it seems to find good proportions in which to prune each layer. And we can actually get better sparsity numbers than state-of-the-art just by pruning globally rather than trying to be too careful about which layers we prune. It's been a very surprising phenomenon. If you pick the exact right layer-wise proportions, you'll do the best. But doing that requires a lot of hyperparameter search. And in fact, the silly thing to do ends up being the best thing to do in our experience, which was a kind of a weird surprise. I'm curious to know how large are the networks that you use for these experiments? In the original paper, we focused on small vision networks, so small fully connected networks and convolutional networks for MNIST and CIFAR-10. In follow-up work, we've extended this to large-scale convolutional residual networks for ImageNet. We've had to change the procedure a little bit in doing so, but I think we may chat about that later. The conclusion is the same, that you don't need to do the pruning per layer. That's correct. We found that up to models like ResNet 50 and Inception on ImageNet, you can just prune globally and 
you'll in fact beat state-of-the-art performance that other pruning methods have gotten. We've even matched the performance of a very fancy pruning method that used reinforcement learning to select the layer-wise pruning percentages, which was a very surprising finding. Do you observe large differences in the percentage of weights from different layers or not? Definitely. The differences are often dramatic. For example, in a VGG-style network, just kind of a standard convolutional network with, say, 19 layers, we'll see that the first layer, which is very small, only about 30,000 parameters, will maintain, let's say, about a third of its parameters, maybe two-thirds of its parameters. The last layer, which is exceedingly large, perhaps a couple million parameters, will get pruned by more than 99%. I think this is appealing, right? Because we have no reason to think that all the layers need to have the same number of parameters, and maybe this simple method is enough to find out how many we need for each layer after the fact. Exactly. We actually found that we used to prune the networks by 20% for each layer, but for this kind of network, it became a big problem. When the first layer has 30,000 parameters and the last has 2 million, then if you prune by 20% for each layer, the first layer becomes a bottleneck. You'll basically run out of parameters in that layer very quickly, where the last layer still has a lot of capacity. So you definitely don't want to do this. And I think it's really lucky that pruning globally seems to work and find good percentages. There's no reason necessarily to believe that this is the case. It may have to do with the kinds of initialization schemes we use and something to do with batch normalization. It's a topic that we're definitely conversing about in our lab right now and plan to follow up on shortly because we think this is an important question for trying to understand the nature of optimization, really. Before we go and talk about your experiments with uh, large networks, can you tell us a bit more about your findings on the simpler models that you looked at in your uh, initial paper? You looked at feedforward networks and convolutional nets. Can you describe to us those experiments? Definitely. By and large, for MNIST and CIFAR-10, we found that running this lottery ticket experiment will find a very small subnetworks that match the performance of the original network. And by very small, I mean between about 10% and 1% of the original size of the network. And really, this depends on how overparameterized the original network was. It's possible to get you know, arbitrarily good percentage values by just starting with gigantically large networks to begin with. But these were pretty standard architectures, and we got sparsity levels that were on par with what you would get after pruning the network, or pruning the network after training. And we found that these networks matched the accuracy of the original network. In fact, sometimes they exceeded the accuracy of the original network, the test accuracy, and they learned faster. That is to say, iteration for iteration, they reached higher accuracy than the, the full network had reached. Now, we found that the initialization was very important for these networks. If you reinitialize them, performance is much worse. It, it always declines the sparser the network is. Whereas in the lottery ticket case, the network's actually you know, sometimes improved in accuracy or at least maintained accuracy down to very extreme sparsities. Just to be clear, when you say training faster, you're talking about uh, reaching early stopping earlier, correct? Or stopping earlier at, a, at an earlier iteration, correct? We measured early stopping by the iteration of minimum validation loss on a separate holdout validation set. But even if you just look at the training curves, you'll see that the curve for the lottery ticket goes up faster and plateaus sooner than the corresponding network and plateaus at about the same place. Okay. I guess intuitively it makes sense to me that a smaller network would train faster, but I don't have a very good intuition for why the accuracies of the smaller network would be higher than the original network. Do you have some explanation for that? Um, we, we have kind of vague intuition, but I don't think we have anything scientifically backed right now. Now, this is not a phenomenon unique to lottery right. tickets. This is actually a phenomenon we see in pruning where if you look at a lot of pruning papers, you'll see that after the network is pruned and then retrained a little bit, accuracy is higher than it was before. And so one hypothesis might be that simply the network has less capacity to overfit. We've removed some parameters that perhaps may have been doing memorization or something like that. And so we've given the network the ability to generalize better. That could be one hypothesis, but it's not something we've investigated rigorously. So I wouldn't put that on paper and submit that anywhere right now. 
Sure. So for your simpler experiments in your original paper, you experimented with a feedforward uh, architecture and a convolutional architecture. Did you see any interesting trends between or differences between the two architectures uh, related to your lottery ticket hypothesis? I recall that we saw some differences in behavior from pruning convolutions versus pruning fully connected layers in some very small convenets. I don't actually recall off the top of my head what precisely those trends were, and I always get them mixed up. So I don't want to misspeak right now because I always get that backwards. And I will say that in larger scale convolutional networks where we use average pooling at the end, the vast, vast, vast majority of parameters are in the convolutions. And so we can basically treat it as pruning just the convolutions. In fact, in some experiments, we didn't even prune the fully connected layer because it was so small it didn't matter. Might have been on the order of hundreds of parameters where the other layers were on the order of millions. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Let's chat about scaling up these experiments to uh, larger models. And um, you have some follow up on scaling up the lottery ticket hypothesis to larger models as well. Can you tell us what the challenges were in doing so? Definitely. I mean, the key challenge, just to be completely blunt, is that the original experiment doesn't work. Once you get to a certain model complexity or task size, one could conjecture many different aspects of the model or task have to do with this. But once we get to what are typically seen to be harder models or more real models, the original experiment doesn't work. If you prune the network at the end of training and then reset all the weights back to their original values, you'll do no better than if you just randomly reinitialize the network. The, the trends we observe disappear. And right. so one might think this is the end of the story. There are two ways of showing how this behavior does actually scale up. And I think each of those ways ends up providing some interesting insights into how deep learning works in general. And a lot of what I'm going to discuss, actually, we haven't even put on archive yet. We found that one way in the original paper of getting around this challenge was to lower the learning rate for the network, which reduces overall performance but allows this phenomenon to work again, kind of mysterious, at least at first glance or to use learning rate warm-up for the first part of training. That is, start your learning rate very low and gradually increase it to the full value over the course of the first many epochs of training. And these restore the lottery ticket behavior, although performance tends to go down a little bit for the overall network. And this might seem surprising. Now, one hypothesis we had intuitively was perhaps early in training, SGD is actually very noisy. In an overparameterized dense network, the network may be able to find a different optimization trajectory despite the noise. These sparse networks, which have many fewer parameters, may not be able to find a new optimization trajectory if they get knocked off course. And the early noise and training may be tantamount to just reinitializing the network in some sense. This is just an intuition we had, and over the past few months we've made it a little bit more rigorous. So one other way of getting around this, if this were the case, would be, what if we just skip that first part of training? What if instead of putting each connection back to its original weight, we put each connection back to its weight a little after the beginning, say 1% of the way into training? And we find that this works. Once you do this, it completely restores all of the lottery ticket behavior up to the largest models that we've tried on ImageNet, standard models like ResNet 50 and Inception. And this has been a strange and surprising phenomenon. To me, it's very exciting because we have this ability to compare and contrast. If you set the weights to iteration zero, things don't work. If you set them just a little bit later, things do work. And then you ask the question, what's the difference? It's a natural scientific experiment. And we found something quite interesting, a phenomenon we're referring to as instability. So we wanted to measure how unstable is the network to the noise of stochastic gradient descent. And so we tried something. We take the network and train two identical copies of it and train them on different samples of data order. So different random data order, which controls the noise of SGD. So in the end, you get two trained networks, which have been trained in an identical fashion, except on different data orders. So you've got two different samples of SGD noise. And then we want to compare these networks somehow to understand how much did SGD noise really affect the optimization process by giving us how different were these two networks. 
One way of doing this might be to look at the L2 distance between the networks in parameter space. And this actually shows a trend where the L2 distance is very large when the lottery tickets don't work. The L2 distance gets smaller and smaller and smaller and reaches some minimum, it's not zero, but it reaches some plateau of lower L2 distance when the lottery ticket phenomenon starts working. The networks seem more robust to SGD noise in terms of where they land in parameter space. Just to clarify, Jonathan, uh, when you do this, do you actually prune the parameters or do you just train the model to the end? So for now, let's talk about the prune networks, but actually this works on the full networks as well. That's kind of a, a cool result of this experiment that we weren't expecting, but has us very excited. So train the network to completion, prune it just like before, set the weights back to their values at some earlier iteration k. k might be zero or k might be you know 1% of the way into training, and then make two copies of that network, this sparse network and try training that. And we find that when k reaches a sufficient value that the lottery ticket phenomenon starts appearing, the networks also reach some kind of plateau of being relatively close in terms of L2 distance, whereas earlier they were much more distant in L2 distance when you rewind too early, when k equals zero, for example. Another thing you might do with these two networks if you wanted to compare them is try to understand, are they in the same minimum? Because, you know, these minima could be very large, and so L2 distance doesn't tell you very much about the loss landscape. They could be in completely separate minima, they could be in the same. What does small even mean in L2 distance? So we tried actually a very simple experiment. We, we used this recent phenomenon called mode connectivity, which has shown that in a lot of cases, the minima found by separate neural networks are actually connected by paths of constant loss, meaning the minima are the same in a sense. And so we tried taking the two trained networks and linearly interpolating between them in parameter space, considering the networks that are on the line between the two networks and seeing, you know, what is the error of this network at this point, at this point, at this point, all the way along the, the line between the two networks. And we found something very interesting. At the point where the lottery ticket phenomenon starts working, error doesn't change along this line. The networks are linearly connected in the same minimum. At points before that, error spikes along the line and then comes back down, meaning that the networks may be in the same minimum, but the minima are not linearly connected. And so interestingly, this, this linear connectivity seems to correlate with when the lottery ticket phenomenon starts working. We refer to this linear connectivity as stability. The networks that are connected in this way are stable to SGD noise, because we trained on two different samples of SGD noise, and they found the same linearly connected minimum. Whereas when they're separated by a peak, when loss increases, we call them unstable, just as some terminology. I'm trying to wrap my head around the linear combination. So for any point in the middle between the two models, you pick some parameter, maybe it's like point 0.1. Right, and 0.9. For any weight in this new network that you're building, you multiply all the parameters of the first model by 0.1 and add it to 0.9 times all the parameters of the second one. That's correct. And, and this is, it's not something that intuitively should work. It's something that seems rather strange, but it's actually something that has a lengthy legacy. This, we were definitely not the first to come up with this. We were inspired by a number of other papers we've read in recent years that have shown phenomena such as can train a network you can get multiple copies of it near the minimum, and you can actually average the networks, and you'll get a network that performs better. There's a lengthy legacy of other people who inspired us who have done similar operations with their networks. We just happen to... The interesting part, I think, is less the interpolation and much more the experimental setup. Interpolation was more a method of comparison that we borrowed from a lot of very smart people who have come up with this idea and used it in a lot of other creative ways. But it's it's very surprising to us that this is what happened, that linear interpolation is enough. In many other pieces of work that have looked at this phenomenon known as mode connectivity, typically linear interpolation does not work. You can't, there there is not a linear path between the minima. There's a piecewise linear path that can have at a minimum two pieces and connect the minima, but there isn't a linear path. 
And so this is a strange set of circumstances where we consistently find linear paths. So to summarize, you found that there is a linear path between the network after it's been trained uh, to completion and at the state where it's been trained only for K epochs, uh, right? To the point where you were rewinding it. If you have a network at a particular iteration K and you train two copies of it under different samples of SGD noise, those copies will always find a minimum in which they are linearly connected. So optimization will always find this linear region. Did this also explain the results that you saw in your simpler models where you didn't actually have to rewind, you could actually reset the weights all to the to epoch zero? I'd be careful to say explain, but we did find in these simpler models that even, you know, from iteration zero, these sparse subnetworks will always find linearly connected minima. And from iteration zero, the lottery ticket phenomenon seems to work. And I will say we found this behavior all the way up to very large models on ImageNet where to me, it's particularly surprising that this interpolation works, given these are very complicated models with a lot of parameters. In the case of Inception, I believe there are, you know, a hundred separate layers in the model in various permutations and various interconnections. So to us, it was very surprising that one could do this on these large models and that the phenomenon scaled in this way. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks. So for the rest of the time we have, I wanted to talk about some of the implications of the results that you saw in your work and also some of the follow-up work that came after your uh, original paper was published. I guess the high-level result here, something that you started off with as well, one implication is that most of our models are over-parameterized, right? I mean, that's essentially the basis of your hypothesis. Trying to remove all these additional parameters is what you're doing. But in general, the other basis of your hypothesis also uh, train your model uh, till a certain point and then either reset or rewind it back and use uh, the model at after it's been trained to completion to inform your pruning, uh, your magnitude pruning part of it, right? So does it mean that we should always start with over-parameterized model? Can we actually be clever about how we initialize these models and do something else? So the answer is right now, I would say yes, but that is to say, Right now, the easiest way to get a neural network to learn effectively is to start over-parameterized. If you try to train a sparse model, it'll be much more difficult. But with that said, I think there's a lot of nuance here. So for example, there have been a couple of really great papers that have come out, I think, from the University of Washington and from some folks at Google that have shown methods for starting with a sparse network and then kind of changing the sparsity pattern as you learn. So periodically, kind of change which connections you have, add some new connections, remove some old ones. And so you can maintain a sparse network for the entirety of training and get very good performance, nearly state-of-the-art performance on these tasks without ever having needed an over-parameterized model. This is known as dynamic sparsity. I've been focused on static sparsity, given that the lottery ticket phenomenon shows there's a good static sparsity pattern for these networks. But I think these are very exciting and show that sparsity is a way to train neural networks. Alternatively, you know, really the implication of the lottery ticket hypothesis is these sparse networks exist very early in training, often at initialization. Now, it would be very nice if we knew how to find them right then and there. The approach I've described is wildly inefficient, and I would not suggest it for anything other than scientific purposes or if you use it carefully for pruning, given our more recent paper on the topic. But really, the, the algorithm was developed for scientific purposes with the idea of just understanding how optimization works and the role of overparameterization. To me, the holy grail is an approach that allows us to prune early in training, that realizes the opportunity that we've described. It's something that I'm very interested in. And I've seen a lot of great papers on the subject that are trying to make progress by suggesting heuristics for doing so. I see. Yeah, that, that does sound very exciting. Can you talk about the heuristics you just mentioned about being more efficient in training? On the pruning early in training side, there was a paper that was released simultaneously with our paper at iClear last year called SNP, which looked at a heuristic where you 
you compute a sensitivity metric with respect to the loss. And the sensitivity metric involves looking at the gradient, and it's there, there's a little bit more complexity than just looking at the gradient. But the method suggests a way of pruning connections at initialization. These SNP networks don't perform as well as the lottery tickets. Obviously, lottery tickets have a lot more information to work from, so I was really impressed with how well the SNP networks perform given this is done using one mini-batch of data at initialization. The cost is basically zero, whereas the cost of finding a lottery ticket is more expensive than the cost to just train the full network. So in my view, you can think of the lottery ticket performance as the, the ceiling, the, the ideal that we would like to reach. And I hope that in the next couple of years, we'll see papers trying to slowly reach higher and higher toward that ceiling. Just to get a sense of the difference, how long do you need to train the network to find the lottery ticket before you like you reset? We train the network for the standard amount of time. We, we need to train to the end. We found anecdotally that pruning less than about halfway through training produces much worse results. Magnitudes are not a good indicator of which weights you need and don't need at that point in training. So one big challenge here is actually that magnitude pruning, which works surprisingly well at the end of training, works quite badly early in training. And so I think the search is on to try to understand what signals we should be looking for early in training. Now, one more cynical view might say, actually, you know, maybe this is an impossible task. We need to know where the network is going to go, what the optimization landscape looks like before we can know what to prune. And in this sense, the lottery ticket has the advantage of retroactively looking back, of knowing where the weights are going to end up, and perhaps there just isn't enough information early in training. Although it would have been possible to prune we, it would have been impossible to know what to prune. There are definitely days where I wake up and, and feel the more cynical view and days where I wake up and feel the more optimistic view. And I'm very sympathetic to people who take both perspectives. And I know that there are people who have very strong opinions on both sides of this. Thank you for sharing this uh, insight. Another thing I'm wondering about, you may have mentioned it already, but not entirely sure. So if we were to prune without actually resetting the values, do we get better or worse performance? If you prune without resetting the values and then you train it a little bit more from there, yeah. you'll get a little bit worse performance actually than resetting the values and retraining from there. And this is a paper that we have in submission to iClear right now that explores this phenomenon empirically and finds that this rewinding or resetting process actually does better than what's known as fine-tuning, which is where you prune the network and then just keep training from there. And... This was rather surprising to us, but it actually someone else pointed out when they saw our numbers from one of the papers that they looked surprisingly good, and we then did a little bit more literature review and realized that we had beaten state-of-the-art in a couple of settings. And that's surprising. I'm not entirely sure why that's the case. I could probably speculate for a while if you wanted me to. It's very interesting and is something that I think should be taken into account when you want to prune a neural network. This might actually provide you with better performance for the same sparsity, which is kind I mean, of cool. I would love to hear your speculation on this, because you probably thought about it a lot more than other people. The simplest explanation I could come up with at a high level, and this is nowhere near rigorous enough to be empirically evaluated, is simply that if you prune a network and keep the trained weights, you may still be stuck in some sort of minimum. And perhaps, you know, the network may, may really be trapped in a place where it can't get out, explore the optimization landscape. Whereas if you prune and then rewind to an earlier iteration, you can kind of replay the optimization process in this smaller subspace represented by the prune network, and perhaps that may lead the network to find an optimum that's a better fit for the sparsity level that it has. And again, this is all far too high level and non-rigorous for me to ever write down in a paper, but that might be one very simple perspective that one could take on the problem. It's something that we're very curious about because this was just a complete surprise to us. I'm reminded every day how little we know about neural networks, and my experiments love to remind me of my own ignorance on a daily basis. Yeah, I love it. Like, uh, more reason to continue working in the same area. So. Exactly. I think this is a beautiful scientific area 
particularly because not only do we know nothing, but sometimes we think we know something and we need to be reminded that we really know nothing. I think that's the most fun kind of place to do science. Talking about some specifics of uh, resetting, there was also this other paper from Uber, I think, where they looked at how exactly you reset your model and how it affects your performance. And they talked about some results on understanding the uh, lottery ticket hypothesis better. Can you talk about that work a, a bit briefly? This paper is also going to be presented at NeurIPS this week. And the team at Uber, um, Hattie, Janice, Roseanne, and, and Jason, wrote an excellent paper that followed up on the lottery ticket paper. They they had a number of exciting phenomena that they observed. One was that actually the initial values don't seem to matter that much. It's really just the sign, whether the weight was positive or negative. You can actually resample the initial values. And as long as you maintain the same sign for every initial value, then it works just as well. And this was very exciting. It was something that I'd seen anecdotally, and they did this very rigorously. So this is very impressive. The next thing they observed is they tried a bunch of other pruning heuristics, including what happens if you prune the smallest weights instead of the biggest weights, what happens if you prune the weights that change the most or increase in magnitude the most. And they found that the magnitude increase heuristic, if I remember right, worked the best. It worked a little bit better than actually just looking at the pure magnitude of the weight. So I thought that was really exciting. The last piece is they discovered what they're calling the super mask phenomenon. They noticed something I'd completely missed, which is that usually when you randomly initialize a network, it has accuracy no better than random guessing. So on a task like MNIST or CIFAR 10 that has 10 classes to choose from, you just get about 10% accuracy plus or minus a little bit. They noticed actually that these lottery tickets were getting better than random accuracy. In fact, quite substantially so, despite not being trained at all. Just by choosing the right pruning, you were getting much better performance. And so they exploited this phenomenon and actually tried what happens if you just try to train which weights you prune. So try to train a pruning mask that determines which weights to keep and which weights to get rid of. And they found they could achieve, if I remember right, something like 80% accuracy on MNIST just by finding the right weights to prune without ever training the network itself. And this actually, there's been another paper that followed up on this on larger scale networks. I think it came out last week where the authors, I believe they're at the Allen Institute, showed that actually you can get up to almost state-of-the-art full performance on ImageNet by taking very wide networks and just using a clever algorithm to figure out which weights to keep and which weights to throw out, but otherwise keeping the random initialization. This was not something I expected to emerge out of the lottery ticket work and not something I ever noticed, but really I I have a lot of respect for the team at Uber for the really careful research they did to make this observation and exploit it, and for the team at the Allen Institute who I think took it to the next level. Yeah, it does sound like a very exciting space. <laughs> Uh, lots of uh, interesting work to do. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is that in your initial paper, you hypothesized that the winning tickets or which subnetworks would remain as winning tickets could uh, somehow tell us about the inductor biases that are required for the end tasks. Do you have any insights related to that? Not a lot so far, unfortunately. In the end of the original lottery ticket paper, I outlined three ways I imagined this might actually be practical. Way number one was perhaps we should take these lottery tickets and see if they work on other tasks. Maybe they're expensive to find, but we can get a lot of use out of them. Number two is maybe we can find ways to prune the networks early. I've already mentioned, I think, examples of each of those. And the third was maybe we can actually look at the details of the networks themselves and try to understand better ways of building neural networks by looking at the structure of the networks, what inductive biases they might encode, what the initializations might look like. And I would rate these in order from top to bottom as easy, medium, and hard. The looking at the inductive biases being the very hard part, you're trying to find some statistical pattern in neural networks that are very expensive to generate, especially if they're 
you know, neural networks on real tasks. And so to me, that's the very hardest part. It's something that I would like to make more progress on, but haven't found anything that's worth talking about as of right now, simply because, you know, figuring out the right way to analyze a large connection of neural networks, each of which has both different structure and different initialization, gets very tricky. Also, uh, there's some follow-up work on studying the transferability of winning tickets across tasks and whether the generalizability of these winning tickets is kind of like a prerequisite condition for a specific subnetwork being a winning ticket. Can you summarize those results for us, please? There have been a couple of studies that have come out on this. I think the most comprehensive is from um, a team at Facebook. And Ari Haonan, Michaela, and Yuandong found that you can actually take winning lottery tickets that you found on one task for at least computer vision train them on another task, and actually they do surprisingly well. They don't seem to lose really much, if any, performance. And in fact, what they generally found is you could take a winning ticket on a harder task, say ImageNet, and then train it on an easier task, say Places or CFAR10 or something like that, and you preserve the same accuracy that you got from the original network. In fact, I think they saw sometimes the accuracy even went up from first finding a winning ticket based on a harder task and then transferring it down to a slightly easier task. And so to me, this is very exciting. This says that it may take a lot of time, energy, and expense to find these lottery tickets. But once you've found them, perhaps when we put out the next version of PyTorch or TensorFlow, we should just ship a couple of lottery tickets for, say, that were found via ImageNet or some very hard task. And, you know, maybe we should be using those networks to train on for general purpose computer vision tasks. And this may give us a sparser network with a good initialization. So to me, this is actually the most direct way to exploit the lottery ticket observations. The team at Facebook did a fantastic job just really extracting that insight and taking it to the extreme, showing how much we can get out of it. Are you aware of any efforts to define the ticket? So instead of just like defining it as a set of weights in a given layer, define it as in a more mathematical way so that you can generalize across different sizes, for example? I'm not aware of any to date, but theory has always been my weakness as a computer scientist. So I'm hopeful that somebody will look at this from a more theoretical perspective. I will say that personally, my research philosophy is that these neural networks show so many strange empirical phenomena that we only observe on real networks, real data sets, and generally at large scales that I tend to prefer taking a very directly empirical approach to these things because I believe that you know that's where we'll see phenomena that can later be codified and justified via theory. I tend to hang out on the very empirical side, and I'm not aware of anything on the theory side right now. I think that's fine. Still, like, the, the question that's in my mind is how do we take uh, winning tickets that work in a certain model configuration and try to use them in a different model configuration where uh, like the maybe the hidden sizes are different? Oh, I, I see, I see. That I've seen less of. I could imagine that perhaps you can build a network around what you have. So add some new neurons that are simply fully connected. That seems like the default assumption to make. And so you have kind of a sparse underlying core to the network, and you could add components. I believe in the transfer learning setting, that's actually what they did. Because in the transfer learning setting, you may go from ImageNet with a 1,000 classes to CIFAR with only 10 classes. So I believe they actually removed the last layer of the network and add on a new last layer with a different size and just reinitialize it from scratch. And that worked quite well. So I think there are definitely ways of taking advantage of this, even when things don't necessarily line up cleanly. Neural networks are so malleable that you can get away with a lot of pretty ridiculous things, like what I've done, and they still work surprisingly well. Great. Thanks a lot for summarizing your results and even talking about uh, some of the follow-up uh, work that came after your paper was published. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we may have missed? Uh, there's, I think, one more thing, which is more of a philosophical note, perhaps, or a research strategy note. I mean, this was my first machine learning project. So, to me, you know, I, I feel like I won the lottery and that this worked, but I feel like there were a lot of lessons I learned along the way. And 
two of them really that I would want to share with folks were, were both kind of scientific and research strategy. I think there, there was something when I used to work on programming language theory for my master's, my master's advisor used to tell me, find the smallest possible system that exhibits the property that you're interested in, understand it there, and only then do you scale up. I think in machine learning, we tend to be so obsessed with large scale that we're not willing to start with very small networks. You know, based on what I've said during our conversation, I think you both know that had I started trying to run the lottery ticket experiments on ImageNet, I would have had a negative result and I would have stopped right there because it wouldn't have worked. And so the lesson I really took away from this is start with very simple networks that exhibit the property. Perhaps they'll exhibit the property spuriously and you won't find the property elsewhere, but we should be starting small where we can do very rigorous science and only then working our way up to large networks where there may be more complexity, more nuance, and also it may simply be too expensive to do the kind of rigorous science that we really should be doing. The other big lesson I took away is, I think what I mentioned before, that really, in a sense, if we want to understand neural networks as they work in practice, We have to be scientists about it. I think that it starts with empirical observations that we wouldn't have necessarily predicted from the math, but we can justify once we go to the math. A lot of weird things happen when you train a large neural network. I'm sure anyone who's trained a network has seen all sorts of strange, surprising phenomena show up, many of which just seem to be emergent based on the complexity of the data set, the complexity of the network, the scales that we're working with. And so to that end, I think philosophically, I think we should be more like physicists, where we have theoretical frameworks, we run experiments to look for new phenomena, and then we have to try to figure out how to integrate those phenomena and observations into our mathematical models of what's happening. So to me, the big lesson was there's a lot of room for doing good, rigorous science. And sometimes we have to work at smaller scales in order to be quite that rigorous, given how expensive it is to work at a lot of the large scales. Great. Thanks. Those are really important things to keep in mind. Thanks a lot, Jonathan, for uh, joining us and chatting uh, with us. And I I learned a lot chatting with you for this episode. Thanks again. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me.